0: I invite you to open your Bible tonight to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. We're going to read the entire psalm. This is the last psalm in the third book of the, uh, of the Psalms, of the Psalter. And it's an interesting psalm, uh, the way that it ends, you'll notice that. But it's a psalm that really highlights the faithfulness of God, and I'd like to focus on that tonight. Psalm 89. We'll read the entire psalm. Let's give our attention to God's word. This is a mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. We're not sure who Ethan was. Um, Not even sure when this was written. Maybe written um, during the time of Rehoboam, when there was civil war between Israel and Judah. More likely, I think, is written during the time of Israel being taken into Israel. Babylonian captivity, Judah being taken into Babylonian captivity. So uh, it's a time of great stress. Let's read what uh, Ezra, uh, of Ethan, the Ezraite, has, has to say. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name you have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face." Who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. you. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke spoken a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. So that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law, and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes, and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod, and their iniquity with stripes." But I will not remove from him my steadfast love, or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant, or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies." But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You've also turned the back, the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen ask for the Lord's blessing. Oh, God in heaven, I just pray that tonight now, by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to see the truth that's given to us here. Lord, this is your self-revelation. Give us eyes to see it, hearts to delight in it, the ability and faith to believe it, to trust it, to rest here, that this might be a rock for our soul. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we look forward now uh, to a new year, 2019, 2015. The question for you tonight is, what do you expect from 2015? What emotion would you say describes you as you look forward to this coming year? Would you say that you are very eager and excited about 2015? Does it look to you to be a year full of, of promise? Uh, do you have great expectation of good things? I hope you do. Uh, but maybe tonight some of you have uh, real concerns about the year ahead maybe you, uh, the, you there are some things on the horizon that concern you uh, there's some trepidation there's some there's some concern, maybe even worry. You can easily uh, think of several things that could grow that could go uh, badly wrong this year, maybe with your health, maybe with your job. maybe you look at the uh, the way the world is shaping up the um, the way you have various powers rising up, maybe you're uh, paying attention to the stock market and um, you, you just you're quite sure that this is probably going to be a painful year uh, for your retirement funds, whatever. Maybe you're someone who doesn't really think about it much at all. you're just resigned that 2015 is going to be what 2015 is going to be. It'll probably look a lot like 2014, and you're going to live it day at day, day by day. take it as it comes.) Um, there's really nothing else you can do, anyhow, right? You just just do the best you can, make lemonade if it comes with lemons. Just sort of a resignation, and, and uh, you'll, just, you'll just do the best you can with what life brings your way. Well, what, wherever you are this evening, my question, uh, another question for you is, how do you think God would like us to uh, look to enter into this new year? What emotions would God like us to have? Uh, What attitude would be honoring and pleasing to him? Well, I think we could say right off the hand that fear, anxiety, worry, trepidation, that's probably not what he's delighting in this evening, uh, if that's where you are. Um, If if you're just sort of resigned to it's gonna be whatever it's going to be, that's probably not what God's looking for. Complete unbelievers can have the same attitude. What, What the Lord is probably... Um, looking for is eager expectation for good things. Uh, he's probably looking for uh, hope for a good year. Now, a good year might be, um, we need to describe that correctly, but but that God's people should look forward to the unfolding of history with a clear conviction that it's going to turn out really well. You see, the Bible calls us to abound in hope. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope. It's one of my favorite verses. It's a verse I need to remind myself of. Peter talks about how God has uh, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that something has happened in history, which means that the history that we experience uh, has really hopeful implications. God expects, it seems from Scripture, God expects His children, He wants His children, to live in hope, a sure and certain confidence, eager expectation of good things. Tonight we're going to look at how we, how we get that, how we grow in that. I want to begin tonight by just very briefly looking at the, uh, one of the great obstacles to that sort of expectancy, uh, and, and that is just the prevalence of cynicism. I, I'm not going to take a long time on this, but I, I recently read an article entitled, Is It Wrong to be Cynical? And the author in that article makes the point that cynicism has sort of settled like a fog over uh, our society, over our culture. And there are many seeming good reasons to be cynical. Cynicism is a general distrust of the integrity of or professed motives of others or of institutions. And if you look around, it just seems sort of makes sense. Institutions have let us down on almost every front. People in places of authority have deeply disappointed us. We we've become so accustomed to scandals we're no longer scandalized. And so to many people, cynicism, this this general distrust in the integrity or the motives of others, um, it makes perfect sense. And the writer says some wear it as a merit badge, proudly proclaiming that they are too sophisticated to be taken in by empty promises. And and you'll find people who 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 just they live with that cynicism. Um, you know, I'm not, you can't believe what people say. Everybody's playing a game. Everybody's got an angle. Everybody's just spinning it. Everybody has an agenda. You can't, you can't fundamentally trust people. Others hang desperately onto sentimentality, or the writer says, or worse, naivety, while the hurricane of reality batters at the door. So people will profess, that they're convinced in the basic goodness of humanity, even though there's all sorts of evidences beating at the door uh, that something's profoundly wrong with humanity. So cynicism has the appearance of sophistication and wisdom. It can even appear to be biblical. Right? You, we could say, well, don't we, we know uh, that, it's, that, that men are, The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? We know that all men are depraved. And so um, the world is just, it is a mess. It is the way it is. Don't trust things. Don't have uh, expectations. But you see, what cynicism does, it leaves out one magnificent piece of the puzzle, the reality that our circumstances are not simply the result of the people we live with. But there's the reality of a loving, good, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, saving, sovereign God. Which means then that if we believe in that God, cynicism has no place. The writer goes on to say cynicism is soul rot. Cynicism is soul rot. It is dangerous because it has the power to spread the contagion of disbelief. About 15 years ago, we had a speaker at Family Camp, Mark Blocker, who spoke exactly on this topic about cynicism and how it has affected the church and how churches, uh, many churches, quietly have given up believing that the church can have any real impact in the culture. Uh, Many churches have resigned themselves to just sort of holding on to what they have, uh, continuing on with their doctrines and their, cert- their particular practices, but not expecting to thrive, not expecting to grow, not expecting to see conversions, not expecting the gospel to be the power of God that it actually is, not really expecting uh, lives to be transformed and uh, to hear miraculous stories of, of repentance and faith and obedience by the power of God. The, the church has just sort of resigned that it, just, it is what it is. It is the way it is. That's cynicism. Many churches and many Christians expect very, very little from God in the reality of day-to-day life. Well, is that true of you? Is it true of us? See, we need to be reminded that that there is such a thing called the Christian hope, what Peter and Paul were talking about, and it's not a sentimental wish, it's not naivety, It is a matter of accepting by faith that there is a God who is faithful. And so we stand in the middle of hard circumstances like Abraham at the altar about to sacrifice his son with a knife in one hand and a conviction on the other hand that he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. That's how we stand. And so that's what we're going to look at uh, this evening. Looking first then at the foundation of hope. The foundation of hope. And then we're going to look at the test of hope. The foundation of hope is God. Psalmist starts out in Psalm 89, I will sing of the steadfast, Lord, steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known to all generations. He wants to talk about the love and faithfulness of God. And because he knows and is convinced of this, he has great expectations concerning the future. Steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. That God is is about something, and it's going to happen. You see, the Christian has the unique ability to have a radical hope in a a radically messed up world. We we have the ability to live in a hopelessly broken culture, community, uh, surrounded by unfaithfulness in many ways, and, and even... Gripped in our own hearts by our own unfaithfulness, right? We, we're not faithful as we ought to be. So we're able to live in that reality with an unshakable, grounded, reasonable, joyful expectancy and confidence for the future because of, you see, what we're we're grounding that on. The world rests its hope in economic policies, in political parties, social agendas, charismatic personalities, human goodness or ingenuity, but all of that's built on sand, as history shows over and over and over again. The Christian hope It's just rooted on the character of God. And and because it's rooted in the character of God, the the Christian hope stands as steadfast as a mighty mountain range, a towering rock of truth concerning God. God is faithful. God is faithful. Well, what does that mean? The writer breaks it down for us in in Psalm 89. I'll just give you four uh, characteristics of the faithfulness of God. It is loving faithfulness. It is a committed and covenant faithfulness. It's a mighty faithfulness, and it's a federal faithfulness. And I don't like that last term, but uh, you'll know what I mean when I get there. It is loving, committed, mighty, and it's through a person. If you look at it, it is a loving faithfulness. If If you were just reading along with me, you notice how often this psalmist links steadfast love and faithfulness. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever with my mouth. I will make your faithfulness known to all generations. Steadfast love—the Hebrew word is hesed. There's no uh, single English word that really uh, captures it. Hold on, just a second. We just got. Thank you. Uh, The King James Version uh, interprets this uh, tender mercies. NIV says love. Other versions say loving kindness. Uh, it's got all these various strands in it. It, it, it involves uh, covenanted love, great strength, unrelenting endurance. It's never going to give up. So it's, it's not simply affection, which is what we think when we think of love. It is a magnificent affection with the fierceness of covenanted oaths and promises, with an eternal intention and infinite might. It's love that will not let you go, will not let you go. And it is a love that you can appeal to even when you are utterly unworthy of it. So David, having done this unbelievably wicked thing, sleeps with his friend's wife and then has him murdered, and he's the king of Israel, God's anointed chosen one. And then for a year, lives in that lie, lives in that sin, and and finally comes under conviction. And what does he say? He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's what he pleads. According to your steadfast love. He rejoices in this steadfast love in Psalm 130. it's, It's mentioned throughout the psalm. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, this fierce, this wonderful affection, covenanted and eternal. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is this steadfast love towards those who fear him. The glory of God is bound up in his disposition towards steadfast love in his faithfulness. So when Moses says, Lord, show me your glory, God passes in front of him. And Exodus 34, it says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. One writer says the entire history of God's covenant relationship with Israel can be summarized in terms of chesed, steadfast love. It is the one permanent element in the flux of redemptive history. So in this, when the psalmist is speaking of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, he wants us to think of this magnificent, fierce, eternal, committed, passionate love of God for his people. It is, secondly, a committed faithfulness a covenanted faithfulness. Verse three and four, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant, I will establish your throne forever, your line forever, and make your throne firm through all generations. When people in the Old Testament thought about the faithfulness of God, they immediately thought about the promises of God, specifically the covenant promises of God. Either as promises to Abraham uh, his promises to Moses, his promises to David, the covenants that God made, those would be the things that would come to mind when thinking of God's faithfulness. There was an unbreakable link in their mind between what God had promised and what must ha- come to pass, what must happen. If God has said it, then it, then it has to happen. If he's, if he's sworn to this in a, by taking a covenant oath, well, then, then it, it has to happen. God cannot lie. We have the same logic in Hebrews chapter 6 where the writer reminds us, uh, so when God desired, this is Hebrews 6 verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, the word of God, right? Which cannot be broken. And covenant oath, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So when when the writer speaks of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, he's thinking of covenanted love, a promise that God has made that stands in this world as real as every other circumstance, but more enduring. It is either easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for God's word to pass away. Nothing is going to wear out this covenanted faithfulness. It's a mighty faithfulness. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared? You are mighty. Who is as mighty as you are, O Lord? It's a mighty faithfulness. And we know this. But so often I think we fail to link the might of God, the power of God, the omnipotent ability of God to his faithfulness and the promise that he's made to us. So so when we we find ourselves in some difficulty, some circumstance, and we ask the Lord for help, as we ought to do, isn't it true that we sometimes just doubt that God's going to exercise his might to actually accomplish things? Or if he doesn't, then he's going to exercise his might to hold us fast in the trial? But his might will not be absent. It's a mighty faithfulness, and finally, it's a federal faithfulness. God comes to his people through a covenant head, through a covenant leader, a covenant representative, and that's why the psalm here takes a huge section of the psalm, verses 19 through 37, to talk about God's promises to David. He he mentions it in verse 3 and 4, but then takes this huge portion of the psalm to talk about what God said to David. Well, why why is he doing that? David, as if, if, uh, far as we know, when he wrote this, David has been dead a long time. So what does it matter what God said to David? Well, it matters because God made a covenant promise to David as Israel's king. There's a federal relationship between the king and the people. If God blesses David, then the people are blessed. If David's throne endures forever, then Israel endures. God's nation, his people endure. If God will always be the God of David, then he's going to be the God of David's people. And so so he's, he's, he's delighting in the promises that God made to David because those promises have direct ramifications for the people. That's exactly what we find in the New Testament, just gloriously magnified. That's why we have all the in Christ language in the New Testament, that God made you alive in Christ, and God raised you up in Christ, and God seated you in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, and your righteousness is Christ. Your redemption is Christ. See, Jesus is the federal head, and every promise God makes to you is made in Jesus Christ. There's no promises He makes to you apart from that. And so God, if he's going to violate his promise to you, he must first violate his promise to Jesus Christ. He must first violate his relationship with his son. That's not going to happen. It can't possibly happen. It would be for God to violate his own being. So God will be, you can absolutely rest on this. He will be as faithful to you in 2015 as he is to Jesus Christ, his son. Because all of his faithfulness comes to you through that son. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. We have the test of hope, the test of the Christian hope is when we face trials, and we will face trials. And there will be times when it seems that God has abandoned us. So here we have at the end of Psalm 89, this is very unique in the Psalter. Usually in the Psalms, what you'll have is the writer starting out by saying, Lord, what's going on? Why aren't you helping us? Why are we experiencing these great troubles? Remember us. How long? And then the Psalm will end, but I will put my hope in the Lord. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is gracious. It ends on that note. This Psalm is different. It ends on this note of of how long. And if, if it was written during um, the um, the experience of the Babylonian captivity as that's, go- as, as that's underway, Israel has already disappeared and has not returned. The temple now is being destroyed. The last remnant, really, of, of God's people in the land as God's people living under God's king, that's, that's being destroyed, the last bit of it. And see... So, and, and and so to the writer, it seems as if God has abandoned his covenant. It it seems like the Lord has I mean, he uses very frank language. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You've renounced your covenant. Where is your faithfulness that you promised of old? How long, O oh Lord? Where is your steadfast love of old, by which which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Friends, that that is a common experience of God's saints. It's a common experience that we find in various places in the Psalter. Psalm 77, verses seven through nine. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Those are poignant words. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? One of my grandmother of Van Dyck's favorite psalms in the Psalter was based on that psalm. To God will I direct my prayer. And the writer captured it this way. To God will I direct my prayer, and he will make my needs his care. I trust him still, though In my grief, no answer yet has brought me relief. With hands stretched out through all the night, uncomforted, I sought for light. I asked in fear and bitterness, will God forsake me in distress? Shall I his promise faithless find? Has God forgotten to be kind? Has he in anger hopelessly removed his love and grace from me? Ever thought that? Laying in your bed at night, thinking about your sin, experiencing the trials, wondering if God has, in anger, finally removed his love and grace? Many Christians have. But there are two things to notice, and I want to wrap up with that. Two great encouragements from this psalm. The first is that sin is not able to break steadfast love, and faithfulness. Sin is not able to break God's steadfast love and faithfulness. You see that in verses 30 and following where God says, if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but... But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. I will not lie to David. is that good news? Sin is not able to break God's covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love. He will not do it. He will not break his oath. He will be faithful, even if it means that he needs to discipline us, even if it means that there is a season where we're going to experience his displeasure. He will not remove his faithfulness. He will not remove his steadfast love with those who are in covenant with him. And so the critical issue then, secondly, is to be in covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And to know that the faithfulness of God is, is, is full and magnificent and free to everyone who comes to Jesus Christ. Confessing your sin, acknowledging your, that God would be right to judge you, and yet embracing the promises that God himself has made. I love how the old preachers talk about the promises of God is the check that you sign and you take it to God. right? And you say here, or God has signed it, and you take it back and you, you cash that check. It has the signature of God on it. Every promise is is yes to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have a faithful representative, a faithful federal head, because he was obedient, perfect in his life and his worship, perfect in his love for the Lord. God now is willing to love us in him. And the faithfulness that God has, and and the covenant promises that God has made to us are all to us in Jesus. And so the writer to the Hebrews continues, we have this then as a sure, steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. Your hope, friend, your, your hope is to, Work in your life like an anchor for your soul you need, and, and, and to know that, that that anchor is fixed in the throne of Jesus Christ. It matters where an anchor is fixed. If you've ever been boating and you throw out the anchor and then you soon realize that you're a long ways away from where you started, you realize that your anchor is not holding. The writer of the scriptures wants us to know that we have a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. And so the angry winds may blow, friends, they will blow. God has promised that they will. But you have an anchor. Safe, sure. God will be faithful. God will be faithful. Not a single promise to you will be forgotten or ignored or fail. He will be with you. He will bless you. And so let's resolve then to believe it. Let's resolve to trust it. Let's resolve then to walk into this new year no matter what it might bring. And it might bring, again, I, we know it, it, it will bring hardships. We know that going in. But in the hardships, right, through it all, he's going to be faithful. If you you doubt that, I would just encourage you to find an older saint and ask them, has God been faithful? Find someone who's buried children, who's buried a spouse, who suffered tremendous hardship and heartache, and ask them, has God been faithful? I promise you, you're going to hear, he's been so faithful. Let's let that be our confidence and our message this year. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, I thank you, oh Father, for your faithfulness. It's a rock on which we can stand. You have made a promise to us in Jesus Christ. And you cannot lie. And you will not revoke your promise. Father, you know the things that frighten us. You know the things that we're afraid of. The things that we're afraid to lose. And, Father, this year, we might well lose precious things. But, Father in heaven, I thank you that we don't need to fear it. For we can't lose anything in Christ that we will not receive a hundredfold in return. And that no matter what losses you call us to endure, You will be faithful, more than faithful. You will provide, you will lead, you will guide until we finally reach our eternal home. So Father, I pray that as your children, we would live with a joyful confidence in God. Father, one day we're going to see the reality of your love in a a way that we just don't right now, and when we do, we're going to look back and, with, and see how foolish our worry was, how foolish our unbelief, how foolish our concerns. But, Lord, today we're your children, and today we just ask that you give us that faith now then. Help us to, to see now, according to your word and by your spirit, and in Jesus Christ, how secure a foundation you've laid for us, how secure we are in the faithfulness of God given to us in Jesus Christ.